around 120 miles、um, south of Jerusalem are the ruins of an ancient city called Petra. Petra was a city of cave dwellings, and most of those caves are pretty ordinary holes in the sides of the mountains in that area. But there are a couple of these caves that are absolutely amazing in regards to their beauty and their artistry. In fact, I, I have a picture of one of them right here on the screen. This one is called the Treasury, and if some of you who are older seem to recognize it, it's because part of the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was filmed right here in front of the Treasury. In Petra, and about 15 years ago, I, I had the opportunity on a trip to Israel to go to Petra, which is in Jordan nearby. And、uh, I, I remember standing, kind of see some people at the bottom here.、Oh, go back, please. See some people standing here at the bottom of the the cave. How small they look! I remember standing there, just like they are, looking up at this amazing outside of a cave, and and all of the the, the artistry, and thinking, this is absolutely amazing. And to think this was done over two thousand years ago without power tools or without a boom truck. Took hundreds of years to do, and as I stood there, one of the other thoughts I had was this: I wonder what the inside looks like. I mean, if if this cave looks so amazing on the outside, I wonder what they did on the inside. Well, the good news is I had an opportunity to look, and so I walked up those steps, went inside the cave, and saw this. Just kind of like an ordinary room carved into what had been, you know, a regular cave, medium-sized room, no ornate carvings, no towering ceiling, no intricate walkways or columns. It's just a room, and <laughs> because I had seen the outside. Because I had in my mind certain expectations about what the inside would look like, when I walked into that room, guess what I had? Disappointment, which leads to something that I, I think I know is true for all of us: that a person's reaction to something is directly influenced by their expectations about that thing. So, for instance, if I had just been, you know, hiking through a mountain and came across that room that you just saw in the picture, I probably would have been like, "Man, everyone, come look at this! This is pretty cool. Look at what someone did in this cave. They carved the room." But that wasn't the way it was because I had certain expectations, and so I was disappointed. Expectations influence how you feel about something. This is why often you have very low expectations for your favorite sports team, so that you won't be disappointed again. That's why it's maybe better to have low expectations for the restaurant that you're going to, so that you're not disappointed. Maybe. 
We do this with a lot of things, expectations, new job, new school, caves. We can also do this with God. When people first hear that there's a God who loves them, a God who cares about every detail of their life, and wants to have a relationship with them forever, it's an amazing thing to know. It's an amazing thing to think about that the God of the universe not only knows you, but wants to spend eternity with you. And as a pastor, and maybe more than that, just as a person in life, I have also seen when someone is blown away by this reality of God's love and God's care and God's desire for a relationship quickly become, over time, disappointed with God, disappointed with their lives. Their expectations of what God would do in their life don't mesh with the reality of what's happening in their life. I mean, if, if God is love, why are there so many difficulties in my life right now? If God really cares, as the Bible says and the pastor preaches, then why are we struggling so much? And those are good questions. I'd be lying if I didn't say that sometimes I have them too. But here's the thing we need to come back to and understand. It's our first fill-in for today. If you haven't had a chance to take out your service uh, insert, that might be something you might want to do. That disappointment with God is often a result of false expectations. That disappointment with God is often connected to expectations we have about him or for him that aren't accurate, that are, that are false. And um, this idea of being disappointed with God is not something that is new to us. People have been disappointed with God for centuries Here and there, you can read about it all through the the scriptures. And it's not that God is mean. And it's not that God is unloving. It's that they have expectations about God that he never promised. We will better understand God when we better understand his kingdom. And, and that's why this series is so important. Because when we better understand the kingdom of God, and today specifically, when we better understand the king, we will better understand God himself. Now, what's the, the kingdom of God? Well, last week and also in our video every week, uh, there's, there's this verse from Luke 17 
It talks about how the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, there it is. You see, it's the, it's the outline. It's next to the Mediterranean Sea. There's the kingdom of God. Um, or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So the kingdom of God, this concept that Jesus taught about and that Matt introduced us to last week, is not some uh, country on earth. It's not some global superpower that God is going to someday establish. It's not something necessarily that you can see the outline of it uh, on some continent here in the world. Maybe the One way to think about it is this, that the the kingdom of God is his rule in our hearts and in our lives. You and I are parts of God's kingdom and experiencing the kingdom of God when we come to faith and when we recognize that Jesus is the king of our lives. Being a part of the kingdom is, is living with Jesus as the ultimate authority, with Jesus as the king. That's where the kingdom of God exists. Now, as many of you know, for thousands of years, people were waiting for this king to come to establish this, this kingdom of God. And for thousands of years, people were waiting for, well, the title given in the Hebrew was this word. They were waiting for Messiah. It means uh, the anointed one. And when you think of another word for Messiah, in the New Testament, it's the word Christ, but, but maybe we think as far as the action of this Messiah, maybe a good word would be Savior. And, and that's certainly a part of it, that the Messiah would come to save. But it's not the best word for the anointed one. You see, in the Old Testament, when people were hearing the word Messiah, it was much bigger than just someone who would save the equivalent word that they would think about was more than savior. It was the word king. That the people in the Old Testament were waiting for their king to come. And part of his action would be to save them. A savior. He'd be a savior to save his people. But it was more than that that they were waiting for. See, someone can can save you and then just kind of leave you. But that's not what the king would come to do. That's not what Messiah was promised to come to do. He would save his people, then he would set up a kingdom, and then he would take care of his people. They were waiting for Messiah to come, a king who would save them, would establish a kingdom, and then would not leave them, but walk with them and take care of them. And then came to earth Jesus. And uh, Jesus claimed to be that Messiah. He claimed to be that, that king who had come. The only challenge was, and this, you know, certainly was felt by the people who watched him and saw him, is that he didn't look like any king the world had known. And Jesus didn't come from Jerusalem. 
He came from Nazareth. And what good can come from Nazareth is what they said. Jesus wasn't rich. He was poor. Jesus' closest followers were not powerful or influential. Jesus' closest followers, they were ordinary guys, most of them fishermen. And it caused people to wonder about what kind of king is this, or even is he the Messiah that he claims to be? And, and this apparent contradiction in what the Messiah was promised to do and how Jesus looked should not have surprised people. Because throughout the Old Testament, there were promises about this coming king, well, that seemed contradictory as well. We don't often have the time to do this in a message, but today what, what I like to do is to dig in a little bit to some Old Testament prophecy about who that king would be and what he would look like. And I want you to see the contradiction in terms a little bit as Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus would come, has this amazingly accurate description of the type of king that would come to establish the kingdom of God. We're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before Christ came, writes, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. At the time that Isaiah wrote, most influential towns or cities had a wall around them. And on those walls, often there would be a watchman. And at times of war, the watchman would be on the lookout for enemies who might be coming to attack the city. But also, if your army was out fighting, they would also be looking for that army to be coming back in victory. Their watchmen lift up their voices, and they see a victorious king coming back to the sea. They shout for joy. When that Lord returns, that Messiah to Zion, the people will see him come back victoriously with their own eyes. Verse 9. Burst into songs of joy together, Isaiah says, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He will redeem Jerusalem. He will save his people. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. Just think about, you know, I guess one of the things I thought about here was like Hulk Hogan, you know, laying bare his arm. <laughs> what you gonna do, right? <laughs> when the king comes on you. Maybe more appropriately, it's the, the same imagery that was used when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, and it says that they went forward with God's outstretched arm, his power. He will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. This, this king it's not just something for Israel. It's not just something for Abraham's family. It's something for all nations. All the ends of the earth will see this, this coming Messiah, this coming king, this Lord. 
They will see the salvation of our God. Next verse. See, my servant will act wisely, that Messiah, and he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. More king imagery. It's the coronation of the king. He will be lifted up. He will be exalted. He will be crowned as king. Who is this king? Who are you talking about, Isaiah? Who's this coming conqueror? It's going to set up a kingdom that the entire world will see. The very next phrase, just as there were many who were appalled at him, stunned, shocked. What? Where are you going, Isaiah? It's all about victory and joy and salvation to the ends of the earth. And now you're talking about a king that when people see him, they're going to be appalled. His appearance disfigured. The appearance of this coming king so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. This this conquering king, people are going to rejoice about him, but he's going to be marred and his appearance is going to be disfigured. Next verse. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. I I want you to notice too that Isaiah writes about this coming king in the past tense and that doesn't need to bother us at all because in God's economy, when he promises something, He can talk about it, even though it hasn't happened yet in the past tense, because it's as good as if it already happened when he promises something. So he grew up before him like a tender shoot. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. What Isaiah's writing is that this coming king, this coming Lord, he's not going to look beautiful. He's not going to look like Well, from an outward perspective, like someone who's got it all together or someone that we want to follow or someone that looks like a king is going to look like an ordinary person. Nothing in his appearance on its own that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he will be despised and people will hold him in low esteem. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus, right? Especially towards the end as he was hung on a cross like a normal criminal, although he wasn't one. Verse four, surely he will take up our pain and bore our suffering, yet the world considered him to be punished by God. How can God be with this this Jesus on the cross? Jesus himself said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus knew why. But when the world looked at Jesus, it would seem as if God didn't care about him. Stricken by God and afflicted, but this king will be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. And so these words from Isaiah, 
They start out with all this joy and celebrating, but they end with words that just are not typical of what you would think of when it comes to a king that the world is waiting for. And so then when Jesus comes onto the scene, people didn't know what to make of him because he didn't look like a king. He, he, he promised peace. He, he promised salvation, but he didn't look like someone who could follow through on it. He didn't look that way. And then this confusion kind of came to a little bit of a, of a head on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Jesus died, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem as, uh, and the people around celebrate and yell Hosanna and had the closest thing to the, the world at the time, the, the, the people at the time celebrating him as a king. Hosanna means son, son of David, save us. And in a bit of irony, just five days later, Jesus is executed. Why? Because he claimed to be a king. I want to take you right now a little bit behind the scenes. A little bit behind the scenes as Pontius Pilate, that Roman governor, has a conversation with Jesus very early on Good Friday morning. And, and listen to what they talk about. Verse 33 of John 18. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus to him and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Next verse. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. What's he talking about? He's talking about his purpose. Jesus is being very clear about what his purpose was. And it was not to kick Caesar off the throne in Rome. It was not to establish the kingdom of Israel here on earth. It wasn't to make the disciples rich and famous. Jesus didn't come to give you an easy life or to heal all your aches and pains this side of heaven, or to take away all your problems. Jesus was very clear to Pilate and to us that his kingdom was not of this world. Your kingdom, it says, or my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, if that was my goal, if my goal was to establish a little utopia here on earth for a while until Judgment Day came and would absolutely have to be destroyed because there's sin in the world, if that was my goal, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. He's saying, you know, if I wanted to establish something, just snap a finger, angels would come, snap a finger, chains would fall off, snap, I, I'm in control here. 
But now my kingdom is from another place. Oh, you're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. And in fact, the reason I was born and came to this world is to testify to that truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. If my goal was to establish a kingdom here on earth, Jesus said, I could do it. And you know what the interesting thing is? When you look at the last hours of Jesus' life, starting on um, that uh, Thursday evening, you see these little glimpses of Jesus being in control. Like when the soldiers came with clubs and swords to arrest Jesus, and they asked, where is Jesus? And he said, here I am. They fell down. Like, read it. Why? Because the power of Jesus as God's son forced them to fall down. Or how about Peter? He thought he could help Jesus, you know, so he takes out his sword, chops off the the ear of that servant. You got this bloody ear on the ground. Jesus picks it up, kind of smooshes it against the servant's head, if that's a word, and it sticks, it heals. Because Jesus is the King of kings and, and the Lord of lords. Even his very death, you know how it's recorded? It's recorded this way. It said, Jesus died when he gave up his spirit. He did not allow himself to die until every prophecy had been fulfilled. Why? Because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we see it even in his last hours. Number two, King Jesus has all power, but he chose not to use it. And here, my friends, is where the intersection of our expectations and what God is up to in his kingdom come together. We see it in why Jesus came and what he did and what he did not do. You see, Jesus came to give you and me victory, but not victory over every disease. Not victory, this side of heaven, in every health difficulty. Not victory in every playoff game. Not victory in every job opportunity or business dealing or parenting moment. He came to give you victory that is far greater than that. Victory on the last day when the end is not the end for you and I and all who have faith in Jesus Christ. Victory that lasts forever. Jesus came to bring peace, but not the kind of peace that happens when everything in your life is great and there are no problems and there are not any storms. Wouldn't that be nice? Jesus came to bring peace in the midst of the storm. This is what Paul writes about when he talks about a peace which transcends human understanding, that you can be in the midst of a storm, you can be in the midst of a difficult problem that maybe you know not going to go away. Maybe it's a health concern, but I'm at peace. Because Jesus gave, came to be 
king of eternity and came to give me life that lasts forever. Let me show you the extent of Jesus' love. Matthew chapter 27, this has happened right before Jesus' interaction with, with Pilate, or right after, actually. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Why? Because you're a king. So here's your purple robe, king. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Why? Because you're a king. Here's your crown. They put a staff in his right hand because a king would hold a scepter and then they knelt in front of him and they mocked the Messiah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Hail, King of the Jews. Next verse. They spit on him They took the staff and struck him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they they took off the robe because they weren't going to waste it by having it go with this king and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And when you think about the prophecies from 700 years before, and you think about Jesus knowing all about what he came to do, and then you think about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords allowing this to happen, there needs, there's emotion in me. It's emotional to, to think about how these soldiers mocked him, knelt down to mock the Savior. It's emotional to, to think about what, what Jesus was going through, and then would go through just a little bit later. It's emotional to think about the amazing amount of love that it would take for God's own son to endure that and hell itself. And here's what I want you to know about your king. Here's what I want you to know about the king of the kingdom, number three, that Jesus is a king who loves his people. We have so many leaders in this world, and we're not sure whether they love us or love themselves. We probably know what they love the most, some of them. Make no mistake, the kingdom of God is a kingdom with a king who loves you, and it was shown as he did just what Isaiah and the prophets and God himself all the way back in the Garden of Eden promised. As on the cross, he died in our place so that we might live under his rule, not just now in a kingdom we can't see, but forever in heaven. And over the the next weeks, especially in week four, we're going to talk a lot about what does it look like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. But for today, I just have one simple application for you as we close. I'd encourage you, number four, to find joy in submitting to Jesus' authority. I know something about Americans. We don't like people telling us what to do. 
It goes all the way back to the Boston Tea Party. We don't like authority telling us what to do. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and some of it is related to maybe authorities over the span of the centuries that weren't very good ones. <laughs> Jesus is the best. You have the best king. He loves you. He protects you. He's with you. Where do we need to submit to his authority? Trust it. Trust his authority. You can find joy and peace, not only in having a king, but submitting to his direction and trusting him. Submitting to his will in your life and trusting him. I pray that uh, you find joy in having a king who loves you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity um, to see how you perfectly directed history, how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies from so long before and how he carried them out. And we thank you, Lord. We are in awe of your love for us and Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, help us every day to find joy in being under the authority of this perfect king. May we as his citizens, as the king of our lives, submit and trust to his will, to his plan, and to his direction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.